They called us monsters, so monsters we became. We are monsters out of the closet. Hello, and welcome to our bonus episode for this month. This is Shreya. I'm interviewing Nicholas Vines, who is the fantastic composer of a new album, Hipster Zombies from Mars, who also composed two of our pieces, one which we featured in Nature and one which we featured in Transform. Go ahead and say hi, Nick. Oh, hi, everyone. <laughs> Hello. Uh, so we're going to start right off the bat with talking about how you ever came up with the concept for Hipster Zombies from Mars. As soon as I got um, a little bit of the rundown on that album, I was delighted because there are so many amazing millennial, you know, new concepts in that album, which you stitch together in really interesting ways. Where did that come from? Well, well, thank you. First off, uh, I, I can't say that it came as a whole uh, to begin with. It was uh, a project that developed over a very long period of time, actually. Uh, almost 20 years. The first piece I wrote when, oh, I was a little older than undergraduate, but not not by much, and uh, that was based on uh, my fascination with a particular sci-fi series, which, uh, well, it was it, it was it was fantastical up to a point, but it was also uh, it was also about the inherent dangers of, of terraforming a planet and how. How human societies would then interact with that in in a, in a real sense. Uh, so that's that was the beginning of the whole process, and then jump ahead. Can I ask which? Um, sorry, can I ask which sci-fi series it was? Sure, sure. It was um, uh, the Mars series by Kim Stanley Robinson, and uh, okay. uh, Red Mars, Blue Mars, Green Mars. Mm-hmm, I think mm-hmm. I mean, it's, a, it's a very long time since I read it. Read any of those, but. Red Mars, I remember quite well because that's what that piece was based on, and I I enjoyed. I'm I'm not sure that I was a fan of the literary style, but I was certainly a fan of the ideas. So that's where that piece came from. It was also about writing a a, a piece that drew from a tradition in the middle of the 20th century, which uh, was really pushing the boundaries of what you could do with in the performer, what you could do with an instrument that, of course, was a very old piece of technology. It's even older now, of course. Uh, and so it seemed like a, a nice metaphor, mm-hmm. this whole idea of, of, of terraforming a planet to really pushing the boundaries of what people have done and can do. And um, the irony was, though, that it didn't get played, I think, in entirety for well, probably another 10 years. So... <laughs> And only then in the U.S., so because it was too hard. But now it's been played a couple of times. As, as always, people learn learn how to get around problems, and um, and then of course it's now been recorded. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that was the first piece. That was, uh, as I said, 20 years ago. And then the next piece was probably a decade afterwards, and that was again. It was one of these kinds of projects where it was about looking at the piano and sort of thinking outside the box, in this case literally, or I should say inside the box literally, and looking at the internal mechanisms in the piano and trying to make music out of things that are not uh, traditionally supposed to be musically oriented. And so that was a 
broader project that mm -hmm. included a, a number of different composers. And I thought, well, again, another interesting metaphor was this phenomenon of uh, the uncanny valley in animation. And uh, I, I can't quite remember why, where or why I came across it. But I think it was I think it was something that a lot of people were talking about at the time. There's a brief moment when I think it entered kind of popular lexicon, and, and uh, I think that was probably because there's a lot of dodgy animation coming out. Not dodgy in the sense that that people hadn't put a lot of time and effort into it, but just dodgy in the, in the way that people would then react to it. Right. Yeah, I agree. And and I think Uncanny Valley is is interesting in that way because I've I've played it to lots of different people and they all have very different reactions because it is a little unsettling. It doesn't follow, you know, the patterns that I think we expect in music, especially in, in piano music. And so it's been interesting seeing, you know, people's various levels of comfort, people's expressions as they try and wrap their brains around the piece as and how it progresses and it moves between, you know, different phrases or scenes almost. It's it's an interesting process, not only to, to listen to it myself, but to see other people process and listen to it. Oh, that's that's really interesting. I, I, I think that probably gels with the reactions I've, I've come across. Um, certainly people are always very impressed, I think, by the performance, because uh, it's particularly live, you know, it's very physical, uh, there's, and there's a lot of things mm -hmm. the pianist does that, that a pianist don't, that doesn't usually do. But... Uh, um, that makes a lot of sense, and I'm I'm very happy that there is that kind of you might even say ambivalence about it because the way it's constructed, not just in terms of the sound, but but I deliberately tried using more intellectual processes or algorithmic processes uh, to create something that didn't quite feel physically right because, of course, at the, you know most of it is about most of it is about human-like figures that are not quite right. And so the, the, the closer it gets to the uncanny valley, the more disturbing, I guess, the music is supposed to be, or the more unsettling the music is supposed to be. And certainly when we get to the, the valley section, which, which dominates the piece, I think, uh, there is a... Uh, the, the, both the sounds themselves and the way the sounds are organised are designed to to uh, not feel quite right, but in the process be right. That makes sense. Uh, um, and right to capture that expression or that emotion. Exactly, exactly. And I, I think only the last bit, which is a sort of representation of an actual human being that we begin to get some kind of feeling of release from this kind of um, existential angst or perceptual angst, more to the point. But even there, there I've, I embedded the structure of the rest of the piece into that movement so that there's this kind of memory of the awkwardness and the horror of what happened before, even in that last sort of triumphant moment. Um, there's still the residue. Yeah, I can I can definitely sense that when I'm listening through the piece. And I, I want to touch on something you said earlier, because I think that ties really neatly into 
Nicole and my idea of, of nature when we were going through that episode and trying to reason through how our pieces were connected with that theme is you were talking about how something being not quite human sets off, makes the hair stand up on the back of our neck. And I think some listeners feel the same way when they're listening to Uncanny Valley. Is there something about it that just gets at you because it feels unnatural and that's almost where the horror comes from? What do you, how do you think you play with that idea of something musical being natural or unnatural, you know, something that's either harmonious or discordant in the moment? Well, I think, I think the most obvious way is with the expectations of what the piano should sound like. And so Hmm. it was very deliberately exploiting all these sounds the piano can make. And I, I didn't necessarily come up with that idea. I mean, it's been around, well, you know, 60, 70 years. But of course, like any medium, there are sure. so many different things you can do once that boundary has been crossed. And so uh, I came up with various ways of creating sounds that the mm. vast majority of, of, of listeners, including even listeners that are, are pretty with contemporary classical music would not expect to come out of the piano, particularly at the start with all the mechanical stuff. It's supposed to sort of make the listener think, oh gosh, what? I thought I was supposed to be listening to a piano piece and what's this? <laughs> I like that idea quite a lot because I think, you know, especially in visual horror movies and such, you see that warring between the expected and the unexpected, and that's what produces the the feeling of horror, is you take a place like a home or a hospital recovery room or something where you're you're supposed to feel safe and you introduce this tension, this sense of danger or surprise or, you know, lurking potential, and people start to feel really unsafe. I mean, I, I watched a horror movie recently and I started to feel so much more jumpy just in my own apartment because this <laughs> sense that everything was safe around me was suddenly disrupted. And I like the idea that you're doing that musically with the sounds. And especially I like the the fact that you're doing it all with just the piano. You're not introducing, you know, noisemakers or special effects into it. You're really just taking this one instrument and you're imagining how that can be made unsafe almost in a way or unexpected, which is really cool for me to think about as, as someone who works in the horror genre. And I think that goes in pretty well to the idea of transformation as well, as you're taking something that's supposed to do one thing and totally transforming and changing it around so it does something else. Oh, absolutely. And, and, and thank you. I mean, I think you've touched on a good point that if, if I, for example, produced some electronic sounds that were ostensibly supposed to be scary, and of course there are many examples of Cosmetic works and electronic works. I'm not putting them down. I'm just saying that that in this context, mm-hmm. you're quite right. It's the fact that the expectations of, of of this particular object are undermined and thwarted. And if I if I tried to add those things electronically, people would see the speaker or hear the the quality of the sound and say, "Oh, well, that's an electronic sound." And and the fact that it's doing what it does is not really that surprising. So it doesn't actually have the, the same effect. So it is. it, it really is focused on, on thwarting those expectations. I always remember 
Uh, I mean, it's it's you know obviously it's fairly light horror, but I always remember the the kind of trick at the in the very first episode of Buffy the Vampire Slayer, where um, there's a couple and there's a guy who's obviously dressed up, I guess almost fifties like, like he's supposed to be the bad boy, and this girl. This girl that's sort of saying, I'm not sure that we should be uh-huh. doing this, and I'm not sure that we should be sneaking into the school and all this kind of thing. And then, of course, it turns out that the girl is the vampire and, and then, you know, killed the guy as opposed to the <laughs> other way around. I enjoy that element of horror, arguably, or, or you know, beyond horror too, but that, that kind of idea of, of turning cliches on their head and, and making them something. You. Yeah. So I yeah, think yeah. that's I, that's the most obvious thing I think about the uh, about the piece in terms of of how it creates its effect. I think there are other things too, which are probably more technical. But I, I guess to summarise, there's there's a tradition from the middle of the 20th century that kind of argued that you know anyone can learn to hear certain sounds as consonant if they're taught to hear them as consonant and and I've always ever since I heard that and I would have heard that you know in the in the early 90s or mid 90s ever since I've heard that idea I've sort of been very suspicious of it because I feel that there there are limits to and this is how horror films work of course there are limits to what we can learn as safe or or as 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 pleasing or or as comfortable and so I guess another obvious thing about the piece is that 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 it uses traditional dissonance as a kind of standard and then variations within that dissonance. And it's only at the end with the healthy person do we get more traditional consonants. Not, I mean, it's not completely consonant, (laughs) but it's more, it's obviously more consonant. Yeah, and I like that idea because I, I think the struggle of modern horror is almost to break the boundary of what is now people's tolerance for violence or gore or other types of horror is especially people who are dedicated horror fans they're used to seeing incredibly gruesome things and not just because of horror but because of work in other genres and the work of modern horror is to still somehow tap into people's fear that has been sort of numbed almost by our exposure to other things. And I think that's that's interesting that you can also play with that sort of thing with consonance and dissonance. Take what people might be used to um, and then still still break that boundary somehow and make people a little uncomfortable. So, yeah, I'm really impressed with that. <laughs> oh, thank you. Thank you. And I mean, that's, that, that's a really good point is that it's true in contemporary music circles as well. And I'm not saying this is a a broad listenership, but there is a kind of oral tiredness uh, with a lot of these extended sounds and, and dissonance being used as a, mm. as a norm. It's actually the same kind of challenge from both a contemporary classical uh, perspective and from a kind of a, a perspective of the horror genre. There's this, the same challenge to sort of say, well, how can we get the same effect as this medium uh, had originally when we have a, a mm-hmm. arguably jaded audience. And so uh, this particular piece, I sort of pulled out all the stops and used all these different ways of doing it because, you know, 
just doing something inside the piano is not necessarily going to surprise uh, at least a specialist audience. And the other the other thing I did, which again again you might know examples of this from TV or cinema, is to disturb the patterns, kind of standards uh, patterns that people expect in terms of phrasing and meter. So it it becomes fragmented. And uh, and people sort of recognise bits and pieces, and they say, "All right, well, that's that's I kind of recognise that as a phrase, or I, I kind of recognise that as 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 a meter, as a beat, as a pulse." But then it's it's all it's disturbed, or it changes, or it's interrupted, and and that also, again, from a technical perspective, gets quite com- complicated. But uh, but the effect is is fairly simple. In, in the sense that mm-hmm. it thwarts expectations. I see that, yeah, I see that a lot, especially almost in the indie ditties, um, which are, you know, kind of mm. shorter, more wry pieces, I feel. And we didn't actually end up uh, featuring them in, in our episodes over at Monsters, but if our listeners get a chance, they should certainly listen through them because some of them are hilarious, some of them are touching, some of them are kind of wild and exploratory all of them are evocative and i was listening especially through bad appletude which i think is maybe one of the most accessible pieces to someone who hasn't done a lot of listening to the sort of classical contemporary music because it includes phrases from a lot of sounds that we hear every day and that we're very used to and i think you do a lot of that sort of fragmentation of the familiar in some of the indie ditties so i I recognize it from those pieces especially Oh, thank you. Yes, the, the, and particularly that piece, the bad apple tube, is, as you say, is taking technological sounds that we're very used to, and for instance, at the end of that that particular piece, they're all layered on top of each other in a kind of way that reflects, you know, mid 18th century mm-hmm. contrapuntal practice. So it's completely, completely outside of of their conception, their use. Um, wow. um, but hopefully, fingers crossed. Hopefully, it works as as a, as a way of, of expressing a reaction or my reaction or many <laughs> people's reaction to to those kinds of musical objects and their situation in people's lives. I think so. I think it. I think it at least gets people to think, to feel. It does a little bit of the work of the horror genre by by sort of breaking them out of the familiar, which is kind of what I'm really interested in as someone who works in the horror genre, is, you know, how do you tap into either the fear or the discomfort or the tension, and how do you do it in creative ways that serve different kinds of communities? Um, and actually to sort of work at it, work at this interview from that angle, what do you see as music's role in the LGBTQ community? Because you're, you're a composer, and, you know, as with our podcast, we work with a lot of authors, poets, um, some script writers, but we, you know, our musicians are a little bit few and far between. And I think it's, it's interesting to talk about it from that perspective of what does it mean to create musically in a community that sometimes, you know, communicates in different ways. Well, uh, I think, I guess it's, I guess it's centered on the idea of difference, of being different. And obviously, personally, I celebrate uh, I guess the progress that's been made over the last few decades to normalise, in some ways, queer people 
and include queer people. In Australia, for instance, we finally had a, a postal vote on gay marriage and, and it was uh, successful, which is fantastic. But for me personally, I always think that, that being different is not necessarily something to, to be ashamed of or to, or to reject. It's that I am inherently different. And I don't think that there's anything wrong with that. And I think a lot of, I think a lot of my music is about exploring mm-hmm. difference, whether it's in terms of sexual identity or, 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 or any other kind of aspect of life. It's ex- about exploring that difference in a way that is, that's supposed to communicate the value to, to other people in a, in a way, in a, like a horror film, in a safe way. You know, you're, you're, it's a safe thing to watch a horror film, but you don't feel safe. So it's it's arguably the best way to introduce people to difference, and what well, well art generally is the best way to introduce people to difference. So mm. they they, become, they come to understand something before they meet it in real life. I don't know if that, that that's partly to do with my sexual identity. It's partly to do with my intellectual identity. In some ways, I'm I'm an extremely normative person in in my own cultural context and, and probably the US as well. But arguably that's not, that's not very interesting. <laughs> and what is interesting is, is the difference and the oddities. And, and that's kind of what I, that's what I strive to do in my music. And I feel both in the context of, of a queer community and beyond, uh, I think it's important that people in the arts do explore those differences because as, as, as things become more and more market-based, a lot of those differences get ironed out and we, we get, we're constantly getting products. Oh, I understand. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah. Even in the popular arts, with, you know, popular music, which you know, is, is at some very profound level designed to make money, even that's been kind of watered down as, as the products become more and more, more standard. And so I think it's important to do stuff that's unique and to use a sort of over-applied term, bespoke, and uh, as a way of, of sort of countering a, a kind of monochromatic voice. I actually, I love, I want to point out something that I, I really appreciated. Is, is I love that idea of not only horror but also the creative arts as being a way to for people to experience something which they have no familiarity with, which might which they might be afraid of, and sort of have that be the way that they can safely explore something that's different to them, and that way they they know how to treat it in real life. And I think that's it's also interesting because you know traditionally in horror people in the lgbtq community were painted in terrible lights and that's how people came to experience them and i I think it's interesting to to flip that on its head also as we you know been talking about this whole session as to transform yet another thing and have instead of having media products be a way for people to encounter the queer community in a horrifying light to instead encounter them in a safe way um right and to to have them become more used to that difference mm. 
and and make it a safer world for us in the real world. Absolutely. Yeah. And I, I, I really love that interpretation because I, I don't think that's a way that I've ever thought of the genre before. So thanks for that. <laughs> I appreciate that a lot. Oh, oh well, thank you. I um, I guess I guess it comes out of the fact that that for me I'm pretty normative looking. I'm not particularly out there in the in the way that I present myself. No crazy tattoos. You know, no, no crazy no multiple tattoos. rip rings. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> and uh, you know, I'm a sort of uh, fairly average looking white guy. There's there's nothing particularly appealing or exciting or or weird. But I am different. I am I am at some very fundamental level different, and I have I have friends who are tick all of the kind of normative boxes. You know, they're good people, and I'm friends with them. But it's very hard to for them to understand how that difference works because they just don't experience it in their own lives. And so if I find that often, and I'm sure this works with other art forms, but I find that by pushing my music on them, they at least get some insight into that difference. And 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 it's an insight that they can absorb in their own time, in their own space, and have their own reaction without it being confrontational or put on the front. Sure. And I mean, I also, as, as someone who also writes and sings and writes songs, I think that's that's definitely a way that, you know, I can also articulate either feelings or experiences or identities that are hard for me to just express face to face with people, particularly people who may not know me well. Right. It, I, I like the idea of, of creativity being a way for us to articulate something within ourselves, which is difficult not to make confrontational when people first encounter it. So I, I agree. And I, I think I, I empathize with that effort. Well, sometimes confrontation is necessary, of course, but, uh, often confrontation is not a, a way in which people learn. So you have these confrontations that they might make you feel better for a moment, but they don't actually solve the, the right, social problem. Right. And they don't necessarily change people's minds. They, in many ways, they just cement previous prejudices. So uh, it's a kind of softly, softly approach, even if the content itself is not softly, softly. Well, I appreciate that. Nick, is there anything else that you wanted to talk about? Any other new work that might be coming out which we could enjoy? Oh, well, I'm writing even more piano music. I'm, I think I'm a bit tired of writing piano music at this point, but, but it was uh, one of uh, it was a commission and, uh, and, a, and a very good pianist here in Australia, Clemens Lesky, and uh, it actually does kind of fit into, certainly into the theme of nature, and to a lesser extent, transformation. It's it's 21 piano miniatures, and each of them are are an insect, an Australian insect that I've kind of selected. And of course, I've selected the insects based a lot on how weird and perverse they are. Um, and there's a Kulala monster is is the name of one. Uh, I think it's related to a cricket, but it, it, it lives permanently underground and it looks monstrous. And uh, there's a stick insect that has wings and back legs, which it doesn't use. It just uses its front legs, and it's kind of blue-green color, and it oozes a substance which makes it smell like peppermint. So, so, so there's all these weird, weird sort of insects, and so it's fun. It's a kind of extension, actually, of the Uncanny Valley model, where I'm using non-typical 
atypical sounds are from the from the piano to create little strange worlds for each of these insects. And it's all very short. So I guess hmm. it goes back to what we were saying about enabling difference to be digested. And they're all very short. So if you don't like one, there's always another one that comes up shortly afterwards. Yeah. Well, that's really cool. And listeners, if you want to look at our website um, and the link at which you find this interview, we should have a link up to that album on there as well. So you can go ahead and check that out. Well, otherwise, thank you so much, Nick. I really enjoyed all the different topics that we explored right here. And I, of course, enjoyed listening to your music. And I appreciate that you contributed to our little podcast all the way from Australia. Thank you so much for being here. <laughs> oh, thank you so much. Thank you for including me and for asking great questions. It was great to chat. Our next episode is going to be coming out, so listeners should look out for that. Um, it's going to be coming out October 30th, so listen up for that. We'll also have new music, new pieces, new authors for our Halloween Spectacular. Monsters out!